This is the word of God, Ephesians 1 and 2. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the word of God. Uh, well, it's good to be with you, church, as we're continuing this morning our uh, journey that began last week in the book of Ephesians. And so I'd actually, I'd invite you right away to go ahead and open in your Bibles to the book of Ephesians there in the New Testament. We are starting very slowly in this most wonderful book of the Bible. Let me explain why. So the book of Ephesians is one of these books of the Bible where when you come to it, literally every significant Christian doctrine is pretty much covered in the book of Ephesians. So just spending time in the book of Ephesians, the themes and the truths that are picked up elsewhere, you're going to find them here. Not only are you going to find these great doctrinal truths, but you're going to actually hear in the book of Ephesians what it actually means to live in light of these things. And so we're slowing down before we enter into this book, and we're looking just in these first two weeks at really what the, the context of the book, trying to get our arms around it. Recently, I was re-watching Lord of the Rings with my daughters, and uh, in the very first movie, The Fellowship of the Rings, the, the, the fellowship that is responsible with taking the ring of power and destroying it, they're told that they have to go into the evil land of Mordor in order to, to destroy the ring. And, and so when one of the, the company hears that they have to go into Mordor, I love what the guy says, it's Boromir, and, uh, and he says, one does not simply walk into Mordor. And, and I've been thinking about that as we've been coming to the book of Ephesians because I've been thinking, like, one does not just simply walk into the book of Ephesians. Like, if you and I are really going to hear from this book and really take in the majesty of all that's communicated here, like, you, you need to have a little bit of, of background on what it is that we're reading. So last week, we did that. We started in verses 1 and 2, trying to, to ascertain a little bit about this book. So we're going to continue that journey. Last week, we looked at the author of the book. This week, we're going to look at the recipients. But let me just read to you the first two verses. We heard them in our scripture reading, but let's look at them again. This letter starts off, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, as we saw last week, the first thing that you know about the book of Ephesians, when you just hear that introductory two verses, is that what you're reading is not a book of history. It's not a book of poetry. This, what we have here in Ephesians, is actually a letter. It's a letter. It's a, written from one individual to a group of individuals. And like all letters, it's written in a specific time and place and in a specific context. And so if we're going to understand this book of the Bible, we have to know this. We have to know that it is a letter. In fact, I want to show you something really interesting this morning. I talk about this being a letter, but I'm going to show you an example. Do we have that picture? This is a picture of a manuscript of the letter to the Ephesians. This is a manuscript from about 200 AD or so. And uh, if you can look at it, um, uh, can, you, can you tell what it, what it is up there? Does that make sense? Is, is it Greek to you? Yeah? Because it is Greek, right? I'm just saying, oh, no, no. It, it is. That, is. that is ancient Greek, and that's the letter to the Ephesians written in Greek. You can actually, at the top, prosephesogene, I think. Fritz, I don't know where you are. We could get it. But, but it's to the Ephesians, okay? And so we have this letter 
It was written in Greek, but do you know what's really interesting about these manuscripts? Do you see any spaces between the letters and the words? No. In fact, these original letters that they were written, this is a copy of it, they were written with literally well, virtually no spaces between, between the words. But I wanted you to see this. This is what the church in Ephesus, they would have received. And who did they receive it from? Well, verse 1 tells us, from Paul. But who was Paul? I mean, we could just say that Paul was the author of the letter, and he was. He was the human author of the letter. Anybody know who the real author of the book of Ephesians was? Ultimately, who's the ultimate letter? It is. It's God. He's the ultimate author. Every page, every word here is inspired by God. He used humans in order to communicate his message within their personalities and their time and place and histories. God's the ultimate author, but Paul here is the human author. And we know a lot about Paul. It's important to understand who he is as he writes this letter. He calls himself an apostle of Christ Jesus. We don't use the word apostle all that much. It's almost used exclusively in religious circles. What does it mean? It means to be an ambassador, to be one sent as a representative of another. So the guy who wrote this letter says, to know me is to know that I'm an ambassador of Jesus Christ. I'm one of his representatives here on this earth. And he also tells us, that he was chosen by God for this, that this wasn't something that he decided to do. It wasn't just a responsibility that he took on for himself. He says, no, God called me to this. And we see in Acts chapter 9, his story of how God chose him. And in Acts chapter 9, we see how significant it was that a man like Paul would now be called an ambassador for Jesus Christ. Because if you know Paul, if you know his story, if you know his history, the book of Acts records for us that before he was Paul, he went by Saul, and he was a very religious man, a devout Jew, but he hated Jesus Christ. He hated his church, but he took it a step further. He was engaged in active persecution of God's people, throwing men and women in prison, separating families, casting his vote for the execution of Christ's followers. That's who Paul was at one time, and yet when he writes this book, he says, I am actually now an ambassador for Jesus Christ. It's an unbelievable transformation. Like, we can just read past that statement really fast, but when you know who Paul is, if you know what he had done, you should stand amazed at that statement because Paul's life is a testimony of the mercy and grace of God. He did not deserve to be called by God to be loved by him, to be forgiven of his sins. He deserved the punishment and the wrath of God upon himself. And yet he says, I'm not receiving God's punishment and I don't receive his condemnation anymore. He has made me his. Paul's life is a life that is a testimony to the grace and mercy of God. He didn't get what he deserved, which was death and judgment. Instead, he got a new life and a new calling it's remarkable, church, to know this about Paul. So when he speaks in Ephesians about grace and mercy and transformation and being brought from death to life, for Paul, these aren't just empty words. To know Paul, to know the author of this book, is to know a man who lived and experienced the things that he lived and experienced. And we said there's two takeaways from Paul's life, two things that should bring us great encouragement here today. The very first one is this. No one is beyond God's ability to save. Amen to that? Like, if God could save a man like Paul, take him from being an enemy of God and an enemy of God's people, and actually bring him into his family, then no one's beyond God's ability to save. 
We look at Paul and we say, you know what? Even the people today that we look at who think, we think they're the furthest from God, they would never actually trust in Christ. He says, look to Paul as an evidence, number one, of God's ability to save. And we look at Paul's life as a testimony that anyone can be used by God. Many times we think, you know what? God can forgive and God can save. But my past, my history, what I did, I could never be used by him. I'm so weak. I'm so sinful with my past. Paul even thought that about himself. He had hunted down the people of God. And he wondered, could I ever be accepted? Could, would they ever believe my testimony? If God can use a man like Paul, and he did, no one is beyond God's ability to use. And no one is beyond God's ability to save. Praise the Lord for that. That's just that first little phrase, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. But today we turn our attention away from the author of this book, and now we actually look at the identity of the recipients of this letter. Because while it's easy for us to know that Paul is the author of this letter, so too in verse 1 we find it's really easy to ascertain who did he write this letter to. Well, who he writes this letter to is it's said right there. Let's look back at verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Broadly speaking, right there in front of us, we see here that the recipients of Paul's letter were Christians living in the ancient city of Ephesus. Now, he calls them saints, and he calls them faithful in Christ Jesus, and that towards the end of the message, we're going to talk about what that means. But to begin with, I want us to focus in on what it meant for these people to be identified as coming from Ephesus. To really understand some of the things that Paul's going to say to them, we really need to understand the time and the place in which these people lived. They lived here, it says, in Ephesus. Now, you and I know that knowing where somebody is from helps us to, to understand their background a little bit better. Like, when you hear somebody's from a certain place, you immediately understand the values that they were exposed to, the culture that they were exposed to. Like if I introduced you to a guy named Bill, and I said, here's Bill, he's from Broken Bow, Nebraska, you would immediately be like, I got an idea of what he probably experienced growing up. If I introduced you to Jim, who is from Hell's Kitchen, New York, you'd think he's a little different than Bill from Broken Bow, right? Because you know those two different places, they hold two different types of values. There's a different experiences. You got rural, you got city, and that influences us in a lot of different ways. There's different values that are held in those two different places. In the same way, like people are like, oh, you're from California. And, and I'm like, yes. In people's mind, when they think about California, right, they have just kind of like one picture. But I'm telling you, Laguna Beach is a lot different than Valley Center. Am I right? <laughs> you know, like when I say, if somebody you introduce and they're from Laguna Beach, you'll be like, I got an idea of what you're like. <laughs> it, even you're like, I'm from Carlsbad versus Valley Center. Like, there's differences because we have different experiences living in these places. The same was true. And so when we read that these people are from Ephesus, we can't just assume that we know them. Fortunately for us, we can actually ascertain a lot about the people that he's writing to, at least what they experienced in their life. Because a lot of work has been done on this ancient city of Ephesus. And, and so what I want to show you and walk through with you here is just a little bit about the city of Ephesus. And the first thing you need to know about it as, you're, as you're taking notes is that Ephesus was geographically significant. It was geographically significant. 
The city of Ephesus is located in what today is modern Turkey. I'm going to show you a map up here on the screen. Oh, I love the new screen. You can just see things now. I can show you maps, and you're not like, where is that? No, it's right there. You can see Jerusalem down here in the corner. That's Israel, modern-day Israel. Right there in the middle, smack dab, is Ephesus. That's modern-day Turkey. And way over there in the corner, as you're looking at the screen, is Rome and today Italy. And so Ephesus is located in the ancient world in a place that was geographically significant because to get around in the ancient world, you didn't fly planes, you didn't take trains, and if you sailed on the Mediterranean, you stuck really close to the coast. The sailing in those days was very, very dangerous. And so you needed roads to get around. And while the engineers in the ancient world, as we're going to see, were really quite remarkable, Still, when they built roads, they looked for the path of least resistance. And Ephesus was one of those places that was located on the path of least resistance, moving from west to east and east to west. And so it was geographically located in such a place that people would pass through it to go from east into the west. It was located on the Castor River, which was a waterway that would take people inland. And so if you had goods that you wanted to sell, you would pass through Ephesus. It was originally founded by the Greeks and then eventually taken over by the Romans because of its significance. And because of its geographical location, the next thing that you need to know was that the city of Ephesus was economically and commercially affluent. It was one of those places in the ancient world that was known for its wealth and the wealth of its inhabitants because, as I said, it was a place of commerce. It was a place where goods were traded. And because you had to pass through Ephesus, the leaders of the city found that it was a good place to tax goods that were using the waterways or passing through the roads. But it was also a place where the hospitality industry was really big because people needed lodging. They need places to stay as they were traveling and ultimately to sell the goods that they had. And that contributed to the wealth of the city. Now, listen, were there poor people in Ephesus? Absolutely, there were, there were poor people. It, just like today, like, you know, Laguna Beach, it's known for a certain amount of, you know, wealth, if you will, or, or affluence. We know that there's poor people, at least I think, in a place like Laguna Beach. But, but in Ephesus, there were poor people. But overall, it was known that if you were an inhabitant there that you needed, you needed to have some wealth, especially if you weren't a slave. And friends, like, how do, what do wealthy people do with their money? Well, I think that they do two things, at least we see throughout history. They, they save their money and they spend their money. When you have wealth like they had back then, they both saved it and they spent it. Let me talk to you about them spending their money and that we knew that, that ultimately the rich in Ephesus used their wealth and they spent their money, especially in entertainment. In Ephesus in the ancient world, I want to show you this next map. Here's a picture of, of the, of, this is a very simple picture of the town. There would have been a lot more buildings, but I want to show you three significant buildings that existed in the city that helped us to understand its wealth and kind of the culture and values of those people. First, at the very top, you see the stadium. The stadium in Ephesus rivaled the stadiums of ancient Greece and ancient Rome. In fact, this stadium was so large and was so prominent that they held games there that would have been um, almost akin to the Olympic games. You had the, the games that were in Ephesus, you had the games that were in Corinth, and then you had the games that were in Olympia. And, and this stadium, think about this, it could hold... 
25,000 people. This city of Ephesus at the time of Paul had a population of about a quarter million. And so sometimes we look at the ancient people and we're just like, oh, they made, you know, sticks and stones and, you know, oh, fire, you know. They were like, no, these people were remarkable engineers. The things that they were able to build and to accomplish, just stay 25,000 people. And so they would go there. They'd watch the games. They would spend weeks celebrating. Below, you see the theater. The theater in Ephesus could hold 20,000 people. It was an amphitheater. It's incredible. One of these weeks, I'll, I'll probably next week or in two weeks when I'm back, I'm going to show you the picture of this amphitheater. It's been excavated. We can see it today. It is just incredible to see a theater where 20,000 people would come. And what would they come and do? Well, they'd hold civic events there. They'd watch plays. How were they able to build and maintain these stadiums and ultimately these theaters? It required, guess what? Money. And, and, and so this is how the people spent their time. And so when you're taking notes here, jump down a little bit because what we know about the people of Ephesus, one of the things that really stands out to us about them is their materialism and that they were pleasure-seeking. They had a real big focus on material things and the seeking of pleasure. Like I said, they like to, to spend their money. But you know what else they like to do with their money? Just to show you how much that they liked material things is they like to save it as well. Ephesus was exceptionally unique in the ancient world in one very specific way. You see, at the heart of Ephesus, let's go back to just a map for a minute here so that people can see that map. In, in Ephesus, when you, when you look at the breakdown of the city, there in Ephesus, there was a temple. And it was the temple to the goddess Artemis, who was a Greek god. Eventually, the Romans took over, and then they renamed her to be Diana. But this temple here, I mean, it was opulent. It's huge. I'm going to talk about it in just a minute. But you need to know something about this temple. The priests there in Ephesus, they realized that people like to spend their money. And they also realized that people like to save their money. And in the ancient world, if you had money, there weren't banks all over the places. In fact, if you had money, if you had, um, you know, wealth that you accumulated either in coins or you had it in jewels or other precious metals, do you know what you would do with it in order to make sure that nobody else could get it? What do you think they did back in the ancient world? Like, they didn't have vaults. Like, if you, if you wanted to preserve your money somewhere, do you know what they would ultimately do with it? They'd dig a hole in the ground. They would hide it. Jesus even talks about that in one of his parables. That was the most secure thing that you could do because, there were, look at there were open-air buildings. You could get in and out unless you had guards 24-7 and a multitude of them. Your wealth was in danger. But the priests in Ephesus had this great idea. We got this huge temple. We got lots of rooms. People here in Ephesus have lots of money. What if we dedicated a portion of the temple where people could bring their money to us? And we will keep it and we'll store it in this room. And we know that it'll be secure. You know why they believed it would be secure? Because who's going to steal from a god? <laughs> and so there was something known in the ancient world as the Bank of Ephesus. Like we have the Bank of America. <laughs> they had the Bank of Ephesus. And, and the priests, they made money off of it because ultimately they were guarding the money. But so the people, I just want you to know this, they were materialistic. They were the seekers of pleasure. Like to be someone from Ephesus, this is who you were kind of known to be. This is what your people were ultimately to be about. But because of this temple, 
the city of Ephesus was also known as religiously influential. Religiously influential. If you look back at your notes where it says the city of Ephesus, it's a third point. The city of Ephesus was known as being religiously influential. It was on that major trade route, and the Greeks, they were the first one to get the idea. They realized, man, all these people are coming in and out of our city. We could really influence the world with our religion if we were to build a monument, something that would stand out so that when people came to our city, they would see the strength, the power, the opulence of our gods. And so they built the temple to Artemis there in the city. And this temple was huge. Built in about 360 BC, it became known as one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Listen to its dimension, 420 feet long, 220 feet in width in its breadth. It was comprised of 127 white marble columns that held it up. But you know what is the most impressive thing to me out of all of it? Those columns were each 62 feet tall. I want you to look up at the top of the ceiling in here. The top of the ceiling in this room is a little bit around 30 feet. Imagine a column of marble another 30 feet taller in height than the top of the ceiling. You want to talk about amazing feats of engineering, amazing displays of, of strength and power and of wealth. That was this building. And it, so it had all of these columns, but inside of it, we know that there would have been the walls, which were adorned with paintings and colorful things. Like one of the things that people think about temples in the ancient world is that they think that they looked just like that, i.e. that they were, they were just white marble. But do you know what the ancient people did? Like all those buildings, the Pantheon, the Colosseum, they painted those things. The pigmentation is just worn off over time. But it would have been an opulent building. It would, have just, it would have just stood out to you when you saw it. And inside of the building was the most impressive thing of all, the statue to the goddess Artemis. That statue, when people would see it, she was the goddess of fertility. So you can only imagine what that statue looked like. Actually, don't imagine what it looked like. I can't even show you the picture of what it looked like. It'd be inappropriate to show up on, on a screen. I'd get comments. She was the goddess of fertility. And so, listen, if you were somebody who grew up in Ephesus or Corinth or Rome, like your life was based around the worship of these gods. You made sacrifices to them from an early age. If things went well in your life, it was because the gods, you found favor in their eyes. If things went bad in your life, it was because the gods were displeased with you. And so, yeah, the people in Ephesus, they were materialistic. Yes, they were the seekers of pleasure. But you also have to consider that the people of Ephesus were very religious. They were religious and they were also mystical. Religious in the sense that they believed in the worship of the Greek gods and and the Greek and Roman goddess system. But they even took it a step further in Ephesus. It wasn't just the Greek gods that they worshiped. This is probably the most interesting but also troubling thing about the people of Ephesus. For reasons we don't fully understand. The reason why I say that they were a mystical people was they had given themselves over to occultism as well. They worshiped the Greek gods, but they also believed in things like sorcery and the worship and the control of spirits. They had really built an industry around this in Ephesus. We don't have time to look at it today. If you're in your connection groups, you're going to see this. But in our connection group questions, Acts 19 
it gives us a ton of background on Ephesus and on Paul's encounters in Ephesus. And there are these two stories that show how deeply invested the culture was in occultism and the worship of spirits and trying to control demons and in the, in the black arts, if you will. It's, it's one of those stories in Acts 19 where there are these um, a group of brothers and a man was possessed by a demon and ultimately the brothers were like, hey, you know what, let's try and cast the demon out. We've seen Paul do something like this. And they had heard what Paul said, so they go to this man who's possessed and they, and they try and cast out the demons inside of him. And, and when they speak to him, it's the sons of Sceva, they, they speak to this guy and the demons don't leave. They tried to say the same words that Paul did, but it didn't work. And, and, and the man just kind of laughs at him. He says, you know, I know Jesus Christ and I know Paul, but, but I don't know you. You see, the people in Ephesus believe that by reciting certain verses, reciting certain things, they, they could have the control and power over magical entities. And instead of them can being able to control this guy, the guy beats up the men, strips them naked, and kicks them out of the house. It's just one example of how they were given over to this idea of, of occultism. Later on, when Paul is preaching the gospel in Ephesus, all these people start to get saved. And one of the first things they do to show that they've been transformed is they come to Paul and they bring their occultic books, their books of sorcery. And they bring them to Paul and they say, we can't read these things, we can't do these things anymore, we've got to get rid of this. And so they gathered up the books and they burnt them. They had so many books on sorcery and occultism that they burnt. It says that the value of those books equaled what would today be $500,000. Can you imagine how many books, how many scrolls that was? So yes, they were materialistic. Yes, they sought pleasure. Yes, they were big into commerce, but they were also very religious, very mystical. It leads me to say this as, a, as, a, as kind of a bring it all together statement. To be an Ephesian in Paul's day was to be known as someone who was surrounded by affluence, who cared about material things, who sought out pleasure and entertainment, who actively engaged in the worship of Roman gods and occultic practices. That's who you were perceived to be if you were somebody from Ephesus. And yet, while this is who most people would think of when they thought of somebody coming from Ephesus, Paul starts his letter by saying this of them. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Notice what Paul does. He first and foremost addresses the recipients of his letters as saints. That's what he calls them. Now, the, the thing for us today is most of us probably have a different understanding of what Paul means when he calls them saints than what we think saints actually are. See, over time, saints have become, I think by most people, to be known as those who are canonized in the Catholic Church for, for heroic virtue or something that they have, have done. The word saint has been kind of taken over. And so if you think about a saint, you think about somebody who's like, you know, super holy, somebody who's been recognized by the church. They're a whole other class of person. Yet Paul comes here and he uses the word the way that it's used in the rest of the scriptures. In fact, church, listen to me this morning. We need to take back the correct understanding of the word saint 
and the correct understanding of the word saint, what Paul is actually calling the believers here is this. A saint is a holy one of God or one who is set apart unto God. Who were the believers in Ephesus? Who were the recipients of this letter? Paul says they're saints. They are holy ones. Holy ones of God, set apart by God. You want to know what a saint is? You want to know what Paul's actually calling them here? He's not calling them some, some super Christian, some Christians who've been canonized by the Catholic Church. He's saying, no, to be a saint is to be someone who is set apart unto God. One whom God says is holy. Do you know how remarkable that is? I just told you that for most people, if they grew up in Ephesus, if you were known as coming from Ephesus, you were known as a person who cared about material things, who sought pleasure, someone who would be engaged in the worship of pagan gods, somebody who would probably dabble in occultism. Yet Paul, he says, oh yeah, yeah, you guys are from Ephesus, you are in Ephesus, but this is who you are. His description of them in no way, shape, or form fits what most people would think about those who came from Ephesus. These people that Paul is addressing in this letter, while they live in Ephesus, are the exact opposite of everything that Ephesus was known for. Why do we need to know this? Because it begs a question. How, church, can a group of people who grew up and lived in a place like Ephesus possibly ever be considered as holy and set apart unto God when this is what surrounded them, when this is what their lives probably engaged in? And the answer to that question, it's found in the very next phrase because Paul says, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are what? Faithful in Christ Jesus what we saw last week with the Apostle Paul, we see again this week with the church in Ephesus. It is the radical, radical identification of the recipients of this letters as saints. And it has everything to do, their identification as saints, with Jesus Christ and who he is to them. For them to be called saints is because... They are faithful in Christ Jesus. This phrase literally has a dual meaning. To be faithful in Christ Jesus is to be one who has trusted in and followed Christ Jesus. When he calls them faithful in Christ Jesus, he says the reason why you're saints is because of Jesus Christ. You have trusted in him. You continue to follow him. Your transformation from a people who would be identified as the world as pagan, occultic, materialistic, self-seeking, pleasure-seeking individuals to those who God calls holy unto him. That has taken place. Why? Because of your faith in Jesus Christ. Church, that phrase, to be faithful in Jesus Christ, simply means that the recipients of this letter have put their faith in and have kept on following Jesus. So why can these people be called saints? This is probably the most important thing that I will say today, and it is this, the person and work of Jesus Christ turn sinners into saints. This is the testimony 
of the believers in Ephesus. They were those who had once been one thing and were now something wholly other. And the reason for that is all because of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ takes sinners, takes Ephesians, takes Romans, Corinthians, Valley Centerites, people from Los Angeles and San Diego and New York City, and people from this world and this world's systems and this world's values, and turns them into holy ones who belong to God. This is what Jesus Christ does. Look at what he says in the next verses. In verses 3 and following, Paul fleshes this point out. We're going to come back to this again in just a few weeks, but, but look at what he says here. He says in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. God coming and doing a, a work before the foundation of the world. It says he chose us in him, in Christ. Look at this. That we should be what, church? Holy and what? Blameless. Holy ones before him. Who does this work? How is this possible? It's through Jesus Christ. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. All this through Jesus Christ. Every spiritual blessing comes to us. We are made holy and blameless. And he does it to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, Jesus Christ. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his what? Grace. Paul says, how do sinners, those engaged in a world that is against God, turn into those who are now holy ones of God? The answer is Jesus Christ. Through his work and through his work alone, through our faith in what he has done, every sin, past, present, and future, Paul says has been wiped clean. And in the eyes of God, he takes you and he takes me and he establishes us in his family and he says, you're mine now, but you're not just mine. You are holy. You are a saint. Listen to me, church. To have trusted in Christ Jesus for your salvation is to be a saint now. That's why I said we got to take this word back. We think that a saint is somebody who's super holy, somebody who is, who is completely different than you or I. It's somebody that the Catholic Church has recognized as special. No, 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 no. 61 times in the New Testament, believers are referred to as saints. The predominant way in which Believers are referred to by Paul and Peter and John. The book of Hebrews is saints. When was the last time you called someone a saint? When was the last time you had in your mind a picture of yourself as a saint, as a holy one? The authors of the New Testament, inspired by God, called each other saints. 
Why? Because that's who Jesus Christ makes us. We are saints now. Listen to this. Church, you are not a potential saint. You're not a potential saint. It's not as though one day we'll just be in heaven. Oh, and that's the time and that's the place where I'll be a saint. No, you and I are called saints now. You are a holy one right now. Do you know that about yourself? Do you believe that about yourself? That if you are in Christ, you are holy in the eyes of God. You are a saint today, not just some future day. This is the glorious truth of the testimony that comes to us from these believers in Ephesus. Paul calls the same thing to the believers in Corinth and the believers in Rome. And the author of Hebrews says the same thing. He says, we pray for the saints. We ask for the saints. We give for the saints. We do this for the saints. And who are they talking about? They're talking about people like you and me. A saint is some super Christian. A saint is you in and through the blood of Jesus Christ. You are not a potential saint. You are a saint. The way that I illustrate this, I like to use is the illustration of a caterpillar and a butterfly. You know, when you look at a caterpillar and you look at a butterfly, do you know what a caterpillar is? A caterpillar is a potential butterfly. The caterpillar is not a butterfly yet, but he can one day become a caterpillar if he doesn't die, get eaten by a bird, something like that, right? He has the potential. She has the potential. I want to be equal here, right? The the caterpillar has the potential to become a butterfly, but it's not one yet. Church, I think that's how a lot of Christians live their lives. I think that's how we look at ourselves. I have the potential to be holy. Uh, Maybe one day, you know, I'll I'll be in glory. And you will. In the presence of sin and the power of sin, the penalty of sin will be completely done away with. But even right here and now, we think of ourselves as potential saints. You're not a potential saint. You are a saint. You are a holy one. The spirit of Christ dwells in you. The power that raised Christ from the dead is yours here today. This is your real identity. If you saw a butterfly who had wings and was able to fly crawling around on the ground, functioning like a caterpillar, what would you think about the butterfly? You'd say, something's what? Something's wrong. Why aren't you flying? You're not a caterpillar. You're a butterfly. You're not going to be a saint. Today, Paul says, you are a saint. One of the most powerful scriptures that reveals this is 1 Corinthians chapter 6, starting in verse 9. I want you to see this. He says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, he says. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Sinners aren't getting into heaven. But look at what he says, verse 11. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. That is who we are. You were once a caterpillar. You're not that anymore. You were once a sinner. You're not that anymore. You are one who has been washed clean, sanctified, justified. You are a 
saint. Do you believe it? If Christ is your Savior today, this is who you are. The reason why the Ephesian church could believe that they were saints, despite where they lived, despite what they had probably engaged in, was because of their faith in Christ Jesus, Christ Jesus who washes, redeems, and justifies the sinner. Today, as you sit here in this place, the person next to you, if they are in Jesus Christ, is a saint. In God's eyes and in relation to a relationship to him, they are holy. You might be looking over at them and say, like, I, don't, I need different glasses because that's not what I'm saying over here. Doesn't matter what you think. Doesn't matter what your perception is. As you look in the mirror, who do you see? In Jesus Christ, there are only saints, not potential saints, true saints. How impactful would it be for us as a people if when you're sitting down at lunch today, you look at your spouse and you say, how's your day going, holy one? They looked at you and they say, oh, my sweet holy one, it's been a wonderful day. (laughs) Do you see how that changes us? When we start referring to one another as we really are, it makes us think a little bit differently. When I'm engaging a brother or sister in the Lord, I'm engaging a holy one. When they're engaging me, they're engaging a holy one. That's who we are. Can you imagine if conversations start going sideways? And you look at each other and it's like, well, if they're a holy one and I'm a holy one, is this how holy ones live? <laughs> In fact, the rest of this book, Paul is going to, he's going to flesh this out. In Ephesians chapter 4, he's going to talk about this very thing. He says, your minds used to be darkened, you used to be calloused, but this is not who you are. Put off the old self, put on the new self, because this is who you are. Church, my prayer for us is that we would be so enraptured with who Christ is and what he's done that we would take seriously that we are saints. We are holy ones. And if anyone here feels that they are unworthy to come before God because of their sins, the answer is you are in and of yourself, but no longer if you are in Jesus Christ. May God help us to live in and to embrace and to see one another as the saints we really are. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as we give ourselves to you right now, we do so just in this moment of prayer, recognizing, Lord, that what was true of the people of Ephesus, of the people of Corinth, of the people of Rome, Lord, of our brothers and sisters who have gone before, Lord, that they are saints, and we too are saints because of Jesus Christ As a church, Lord, may we embrace this radical identity. Now, we not talk about it or think about it flippantly, but realize that if you could transform people back then, that you're still in the business of doing that today. And so, Lord, help us to embrace these truths to the praise and glory of your name we ask it. And all God's people said, amen and amen.